While abridging the records of the Nephites, Mormon wrote, Behold, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I have been called of him to declare his word among this people that they might have everlasting life. This humble yet straightforward declaration ought to express the feelings of all Latter-day Saints, disciples of Christ, called to minister in his cause. Who is this Jesus whom we worship? Above all people on earth, we Latter-day Saints should appreciate the vital significance of Jesus of Nazareth, his role in the plan of salvation, his virgin birth, his immaculate life, his powerful teachings, his selfless death, his glorious resurrection, his guidance of his church. In Lloyd Douglas's book, The Robe, is an imaginative account of the entry of Christ into Jerusalem riding a donkey. Amid the hysteria of the excited multitude, ignorant of the significance of the event and of its chief actor, occurs a conversation between two Greek slaves. See him close up, asked the uncouth Athenian. Demetrius nodded, turning away. Crazy, persisted the other. No. King? No, muttered Demetrius, not a king. What is he then? I don't know, mumbled Demetrius, but he is something more important than a king. Jesus Christ is indeed more than a king. He is the Son of God, our Savior, our Redeemer, the author and finishing of our faith, King of kings, Lord of lords, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That's what the gospel is all about. Without him, without his intervention in our behalf, we'd be helpless in the face of Adam's transgression. We are indeed saved by grace through faith. Or as Nephi wrote, it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. All other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages to the testimony of Jesus his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. A little girl misquoting the 23rd Psalm put everything in perspective. She said, The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. What more could anyone want? What could be more desirable than to look unto Jesus in every thought? As we ponder our relationship to our Savior, may I paint some sketches of him that have helped me become acquainted with Him and serve as standards by which I have tried to measure my life. He was born of Mary. He had the power to die. He was the firstborn of the Father, the Son of God. He had the power to live and the capacity to live perfectly. We know that Jesus received not of the fullness at first, but continued from grace to grace until He received a fullness. As a youth, the Lord increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. During this growth process, he suffered temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, even more than man can suffer. He experienced all of these things, that his bowels might be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. There is nothing we experience. No heartache or joy that he has not experienced more intensely. And his response to such experiences was perfect. He thus established a pattern for our own lives. During his mortal life, Jesus gave us his gospel and organized his church. 
Jesus taught his disciples how to live more abundantly and showed us the way to happiness here and eternal life hereafter. He performed many miracles. They were an important element in the work of Jesus Christ, being not only divine acts, but forming also a part of the divine teaching. They were intended to be a proof to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. The miracles of healing also show how the law of love is to deal with the actual facts of life. Miracles were and are a response to faith and its best encouragement. Recall a pathos in one of Christ's greatest miracles, the raising of his friend Lazarus from the dead. The compassionate Savior responded to the pleas of his friends, but also delayed his coming in order to use the occasion to teach. I am glad for your sakes, he said, that I was not there to the intent you may believe. The morning Martha said with childlike faith, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Mary expressed similar feelings. If thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. And Jesus, seeing her and others weeping, groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and he himself wept. The depth of caring and compassion is remarkable and warmly inviting. Jesus, with the power of faith and power, said simply, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. A life restored, an irrefutable evidence of Christ's divinity, forever established as a basis of faith. I exult with Paul, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Christ has won the victory. Death is conquered. Life, eternal life, reigns triumphant. We are disciples of the living Christ. Though his body was laid in a borrowed sepulcher, he was resurrected on the third day, appearing to many. Imagine yourself in the company of the disciples and other believers on the day of the resurrection. Mere hours have passed since you witnessed the horrifying crucifixion of the gentle Nazarene. You've shared hopeless moments of profound sorrow, confused, knowing not where to turn, how to act. Your minds are clouded with mists of despair. Then two disciples join you with word that they have conversed with the Lord on the road to Emmaus. Dare you believe them when they report, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Luke recorded this remarkable event. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. That scene lives in my heart, for it heralds immortality for all of us. It assures us of continued life after death, free from mortal pain and sorrow. Jesus took upon himself the sins of all of us in Gethsemane and on that cross. He died that we might live. Who among us has not experienced the pain of sin? 
Who does not desperately need the balm of divine forgiveness to heal a wounded soul? Lehi taught his son Jacob, Wherefore redemption cometh in and through the holy Messiah, for he is full of grace and truth. Behold, he offereth himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law, and to all those who have a a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And unto none else can the ends of the law be answered. His was a great and last sacrifice, an infinite and eternal sacrifice, which none but the sinless Son of God could effect. The way to eternal life has been cleared by the way, the truth, and the life. Why should we not accept the invitation to salvation as phrased by Peter, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you? Wherefore, how great the importance to make these things known unto the inhabitants of the earth. Jesus displayed a missionary zeal, a fervent desire that all the children of God enjoy the blessings of his gospel. Isn't it interesting that the last chapter of each of the gospels contains an appeal from the risen Lord to spread the gospel? On the wall of the main floor of the church office building in Salt Lake City is a magnificent mural depicting Jesus Christ as a resurrected being standing among his eleven apostles as he gives them their stirring charge to be missionaries to all the world. Go ye, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The apostles who there stood to the Son of God responded to this call with faith, boldness, and power. We read that they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. They had seen a resurrected being. They had eaten with him, had felt his hands and feet. They knew, and knowing they testified. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Does that commission extend to us as his disciples? Perhaps we have not seen in person the risen Lord, but the testimony of His chosen witnesses is etched into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We know, and knowing we too must testify. Is there any question in the mind of any of us that this is one of the chief responsibilities we enjoy by reason of our membership in His Church? I began with Mormon's declaration. I have been called of Him to declare His word among this people that they might have everlasting life. Such is the calling of each of us. What Christ desires from from each of us is surrender, complete and total, a voluntary gift of trust, faith, and love. C.S. Lewis captured the spirit of this surrender. Christ says, Give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self but to kill it. No half-measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I'll give you a new self instead. In fact, I'll give you myself. My own will shall become yours. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I express my willingness to so submit myself to my Savior because I trust Him, I believe Him, and I love Him. 
I say with Job, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My brethren and sisters, I'm sure sure that all of us have been honored to be in the presence of President Ezra Taft Benson, President of the Church, our prophet. I've loved him, respected him all of my life, I'm sure as you have. Throughout the ages, the Lord has referred to his people, those who love him and keep his commandments, In words that set them apart, he has called them a peculiar treasure, a special people, a royal priesthood, and holy nation. Scriptures refer to such people as saints. As the Savior taught, by their fruits ye shall know them. In sharp contrast to those who live by gospel principles, I see accounts of people who either ignore or don't understand these principles. Some do not live the gospel standards and live in sin, dishonesty, and crime. The result is untold misery, pain, suffering, and sorrow. I'm reminded of the Savior's teachings when he declared, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not, I will liken him unto a wise man uh, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came, And the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. End of quote. This analogy teaches us an important lesson. We cannot have the fruits of the gospel without its roots. Through revelation, the Lord has established those roots, distinctive principles of the fullness of the gospel. They give us direction. He has taught us how we should build our lives on a solid foundation, like a rock, that will withstand the temptations and storms of life. May I give you some of the major principles of the gospel? One distinctive principle is a true concept of the nature of the Godhead. We believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost. The Godhead consists of three separate, distinct personages who are one in purpose. The Father and Son have tangible bodies of flesh and bone, while the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit. God truly is our Father, the Father of the spirits of all mankind. We are His literal offspring and are formed in His image. We have inherited divine characteristics from Him. Knowing our relationship to our Heavenly Father helps us understand the divine nature that is in us and our potential. The doctrine of the fatherhood of God lays a solid foundation for self-esteem. The hymn titled I am a child of God, states this doctrine in simple terms. Can a person who understands his divine parenthood lack self-esteem? 
I have known people who, are, who have a deep abiding assurance of this truth and others who understand it only superficially and intellectually. The contrast in their attitudes and the practical effect of these attitudes in their lives is remarkably apparent. Knowing that Jesus Christ is the firstborn Son of God in the Spirit and the only begotten Son in the flesh gives a far more noble and majestic view of Him than if He were just a great teacher or philosopher. He is our Lord, the Redeemer of all mankind, our Mediator with the Father. Because of His love for us, He has atoned for the sins of the world and has provided a way for the faithful to return to our Heavenly Father's presence. He is the greatest being to be born on this earth, the perfect example. He is the Lord of lords, King of kings, the Creator, the Savior, the God of the whole earth. His name is the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. He will come again in power and glory to dwell on the earth and will stand as judge of all mankind at the last day. He stands at the head of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We should be everlastingly grateful to Him. We should love Him with all our hearts and should follow His example. The Holy Ghost, the third member of the Godhead, is a revelator. He reveals the Word of God. He provides the convincing witness that the gospel is true and gives a person a testimony of the divinity of Jesus Christ. He guides us in our choices and in our search for truth. Next, I turn to our assurance of a literal resurrection, the uniting after mortal death, the spirit with a body of flesh and bone. Jesus the first on this earth to be resurrected made the resurrection a certainty for all mankind. This reality is a center point of hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have seen the contrast between those who have spiritual confidence in the resurrection and others who are confused and uncertain about our post-mortal post condition. I was inspired by one mother who faced the untimely death of a two-year-old daughter. With serenity, despite her deep sorrow, she attributed the peace she felt to her faith in a merciful God and in life everlasting. She was confident that this sweet child was encompassed in the arms of God's love and that she and her daughter would be together again. In the Lord's plan, parents are to teach their children during the impressionable and formative years when they develop attitudes and habits that last a lifetime. President Brigham Young wisely recognized that the time of youth and early manhood is the proper time to gain mastery over bodily appetites and passions. He warned that the man who suffers his passions to lead him becomes a slave to them, and such a man will find the work of emancipation an exceedingly difficult one." End of quote. We can be so grateful for principles that provide positive spiritual reinforcement for parental teachings and that direct young people away from the pitfalls that Satan has strewn along the path of adolescence and young adulthood. The Word of Wisdom was revealed to the Prophet Joseph Smith in 1833. This revelation has been scrutinized and ignored, attacked and defended, ridiculed and praised. Meanwhile, faithful saints have observed it as a token of their obedience to God. For many years they 
could obey it only on faith, in much the same spirit that Adam offered sacrifice. An angel asked him, I quote, Why dost thou offer sacrifices unto the Lord? And Adam said unto him, I know not, save the Lord commanded me. End of quote. Early members of the Church obeyed the Lord's counsel without the benefit of present medical knowledge, which has validated the physical benefits of their obedience. We now know by scientific evidence what the saints have known by revelation for 158 years. Imagine the results we would see if the total populace were to live this law of health and never abuse their bodies with alcoholic beverages, tobacco, and other harmful substances. What magnitude of decline would we see in automobile accidents, illness, and premature death, fetal defects, crime, squandered dollars, broken homes, and wasted lives resulting from alcohol and, ad and other addictive drugs? How much would lung cancer, heart disease, and other ailments caused by cigarette smoking decrease? The fruits of this commandment bring innumerable blessings. Members of the Church have obviously been blessed with health and spirituality by, by being obedient to this commandment. A sure indi indicator of true religion is a concern for the poor of the earth. This leads us to provide for their needs by acts of charity. I quote James, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep unspotted from the world." End of quote. Stated simply, charity means subordinating our interests and needs to those of others, as the Savior has done for all of us. The Apostle Paul wrote, That of faith, hope, and charity, the greatest of these is charity. And Moroni wrote, that except ye have charity, ye can in no wise be saved in the kingdom of God. I believe that selfless service is a distinctive part of the gospel. As President Spencer W. Kimball said, welfare service is not a program, but the essence of the gospel. It is the gospel in action. It is the crowning principle of a Christian life." End of quote. The Church does substantial but perhaps little-known humanitarian work in many places in the world. Our ability to reach out to others is made possible only to the extent that we are self-reliant. When we are self-reliant, we will use material blessings we receive from God to take care of ourselves and our families and be in a position to help others. Discussion on the principle of self-reliance may seem merely to echo the, the obvious, but it runs counter to the trends in our society that shift responsibility to others. Many saints have sp been spared suffering because they have lived by this principle. The foundation of self-reliance is hard work. Parents should teach their children that work is the prerequisite to achievement and success in every worthwhile endeavor. Children of legal age should secure productive employment and begin to move away from dependence on parents. None of us should expect others to provide for us that which we can provide for ourselves. Missionary work was a distinct part of the Savior's mortal ministry. This is also true today. The Savior commanded, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
His disciples, especially Paul, proclaimed the gospel message widely in the years following the Savior's crucifixion. In 1831, the Lord revealed through the prophet Joseph Smith, The voice of the Lord is unto all men, and there is none to escape, and there is no eye that shall not see, neither ear that shall not hear, neither heart that shall not be penetrated. Today, more than 44,000 missionaries are working to fulfill the divine mandate to preach the gospel. They bless the people they teach by acquainting them with the fullness of the restored gospel. They bless themselves by the dramatic growth and maturity that come during a mission. Every worthy young man should go on a mission. Also, worthy young women and couples of the Church can give invaluable service in the mission field. They all serve as the, mission, of the, as the emissaries of the Lord. We thank them most sincerely. Another distinctive characteristic of the gospel is the adherence to the Lord's law of chastity. From ancient times to the present, the Lord has commanded His people to obey this law. Such strict morality may seem peculiar or outdated in our day when the media portrays pornography and immorality as being normal and fully acceptable. Remember, the Lord has never revoked the law of chastity. Temple marriage vows increase the depth of faithfulness between husband and wife. Obedience to the law of chastity would diminish cries for abortion and would go a long way towards controlling sexually transmitted disease. Total fidelity in marriage would eliminate a major cause of divorce with its consequent pain and sadness inflicted especially upon innocent children. Of course, members of the Church have their share of faults and weaknesses, but we see abundant evidence that living the gospel does help the saints to become better. As more people commit themselves to living the gospel with all their heart, might, mind, and strength, they will be examples to their families and friends. How blessed we are to understand and to have the privilege of living by the sacred eternal principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are true. They will lead us along the only safe course to happiness, which is the object and design of our existence. In conclusion, let me offer this advice and promise. Never be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Partake of the sacrament worthily. Always remember our Lord and Savior. Never defame His sacred name. Do not ridicule the sacredness of the holy priesthood and the ordinances of the gospel. If you honor this counsel, the spirit of rebellion will never come into your hearts. You will be blessed as Alma, who said, I have labored without ceasing, that I might bring them to taste of the exceeding joy which I did taste. Yea, the Lord doth give me exceedingly great joy in the fruit of my labors. For because of the word which he has imparted unto me, behold, many have been born of God and have tasted as I have tasted. End of quote. In addition, if you will sustain the Lord's anointed, your confidence in them will wax strong. Your families and your posterity will be blessed and strengthened. The abundant fruits of the gospel will enrich your lives. Peace and unity will fill your hearts and homes. My brothers and sisters, your leaders of the Church love you and labor to bring you the fruits of the gospel that you may taste as we have tasted 
May you feel that marvelous joy of God's love and his blessings in your life. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Behold, now is the time and the day of your salvation. This life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. The day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. These words are as applicable today as when expressed by Amulek centuries ago. Many years ago, I clipped an article out of a newspaper. It tells about an elevator boy who was whistling a merry tune on his way up on the elevator one morning. Why so happy? A grim-faced, scowling rider asked him. The boy replied, I've never lived this day before. The writer of the article comments, This boy was wiser than his years. The only life we can live is today. Yesterday is behind us. However golden the hours, they cannot be lived again, but only remembered. Tomorrow is before us. And however sweet its expectations, the clock must take its patient course before we can test our hope against reality. We can live no more than one day at a time. End of quote. Elder Richard L. Evans shared this meaningful thought in his spoken word. It sometimes seems that we live as if we wonder when life is going to begin. It isn't always clear just what we are waiting for. But some of us sometimes persist in waiting so long that life slips by, finding us still waiting for something that has been going on all the time. This is the life in which the work of this life is to be done. Today is as much a part of eternity as any day a thousand years ago or as will be any day a thousand years hence. This is it. Whether we are thrilled or disappointed, busy or bored, this is life and it is passing. End of quote. Today is a day of eternity. I hope each day we are thankful for life, for knowing we are sons and daughters of God, and that the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is upon the earth. I hope we will have a desire and a determination to make each day a good day. How can we do this? Here are some suggestions. I encourage you to add others. Each day, let us nourish our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us follow the inspired message from the Lord's living prophet, Ezra Taft Benson. Read daily from the Book of Mormon and make a study of this book a lifetime pursuit." End of quote. We can go to our Father in heaven in individual prayer. We can kneel each day as a family. How very important it is that we do this. As we attend our meetings on the Sabbath and partake of the sacrament worthily, we can have our Father's Spirit with us every day. Let us live daily the great saving principle of repentance. We will become more humble and teachable. Each day will be a good day if we will think of the Savior and make him the center of our lives, for he is the light and the life and the truth of the world. Following the Savior will help us to be honest. I would like to tell you about a 12-year-old boy in the Philippines who was following the Savior. Julius had gone to school without eating any breakfast. And during class, his stomach began to make funny sounds. During recess, he hurried to a nearby barbecue stand. 
He took two sticks of meat, ate the food, and went back to class. When he returned, he discovered he had not given the pesos for the food. Without hesitation, he ran back and paid for his snack. When he arrived back at the classroom, he found a very angry teacher. He had forgotten to ask permission to leave. She wanted to know what he had been doing. He told her everything. Then she put her arm on his shoulder and, facing the class, said, Class, I want you to be honest like Julius. She asked him why he returned the money when he could have kept it. He answered, Because I believe in being honest. What is your religion? She wanted to know. Without hesitation, he said, I am a Mormon. Oh, she responded, No wonder. (laughs) Julius is making each day a good day by always being honest. Following the Savior will help us to be morally clean. We will respect our bodies and not tamper with drugs, alcohol, pornography, or in any way destroy the great miracle of life which the Lord has given to each of us. Recently, I listened to the words of a stalwart young teenager who told about how some young people in his school have not kept the standards of the Church and have used some of the destructive substances we have been warned against. Friends who know he is a Mormon have asked him why he doesn't partake of these harmful things. He explained, I am happy to know that I have not disappointed the Lord and dishonored the priesthood he has given me. Remember, you can lie to yourself and you can lie to others, but you can never lie to the Lord. He knows what you are doing. To help us along the way, a good guideline is to imagine that Jesus is right beside you all the time. Ask yourself, would Jesus be doing this or would he get into this situation? End of quote. As the Savior becomes the center of our lives, we will be more loving and giving. He is taught by precept and example that if we would truly find ourselves, we must first lose ourselves in serving and helping others. I believe one of the best ways to make each day a good one is to help build the kingdom of God. What a blessing it is for each of us to be leaders of righteousness. President Spencer W. Kimball has said, Membership in the Church is a call to leadership. End of quote. Let us be good leaders in our homes. This means both children and parents, leaders in our neighborhoods, our schools, our communities, and the Church. Each day can be richer and more meaningful if we can be happy with ourselves. Some of the most undesirable feelings are those of envying, coveting, and wishing that we were someone else. We should be grateful for who we are and what we are and for the talents we have been given. We should be supportive of and grateful for the talents of others, always looking for those divine qualities which are in every person we meet. It is important that we be ourselves and like ourselves. Someone has said, A bee may not be an eagle, but it can sure make honey. Here is another suggestion. Don't worry about those things which you cannot change. If something can be done, do it. If nothing can be done, don't worry about it. Several years ago, I read an article written about Elder LeGrand Richards. He had just turned age 93. 
Someone asked him what his secret was for living such a long, happy, and useful life. He said, I have a verse that has been part of my philosophy throughout my life. Here it is. For every worry under the sun, there is a remedy or there is none. If there be one, hurry and find it. If there be none, then never mind it. End of quote. I have one more suggestion. I share this counsel from President Ezra Taft Benson. If we want to keep the spirit, we must work. There is no greater exhilaration or satisfaction than to know after a hard day of work that we have done our best. Ours is a gospel of work, purposeful, unselfish, and rendered in the spirit of the true love of Christ. End of quote. Each day we live is a day of eternity. Let us make each day a good day by nourishing faith, growing through repentance, following the Savior, serving in the kingdom, being happy with ourselves, not worrying, working diligently. I pray as with Alma that each day we would humble ourselves before the Lord and call on His holy name and watch and pray continually that we may not be tempted above that which we can bear and thus be led by the Holy Spirit, becoming humble, meek, submissive, patient, full of love and all long-suffering, having faith on the Lord, having a hope that we shall receive eternal life, having the love of God always in our hearts, that we may be lifted up at the last day and enter into His rest." End of quotes. Today my heart is full of gratitude as my service as a seventy comes to a close. I am grateful for my good wife, Isabel, who has so lovingly and unselfishly served by my side and whose example has shown me how to make each day a good one. I express thanks to our children and their eternal companions and our grandchildren for their support, steadfastness, and righteousness. I have learned from the examples of the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve the meaning of discipleship to the Savior. With the Quorums of the Seventy and the Presiding Bishopric, I have shared the joy of brotherhood. To all the members and missionaries with whom I have been privileged to serve in Asia, the Philippines, Micronesia, Guam, Great Britain, and the Southwest area of the United States, I say thank you. You are examples of making every day a good day. Above all, I express my gratitude and love to my Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the life, light, and truth of the world. I leave my witness that He is our Savior and Redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My brethren and sisters, on this bright and beautiful day, I should like to address the subject of light. The dictionary defines light as something that makes vision possible, or something that enlightens or informs. Two types of light are physical light and spiritual light. Physical light, especially natural light, affects the moods of people. When summer's light begins to fade, days grow shorter, and the winter season looms darkly ahead, Natural light becomes a more precious commodity, especially to people who live in extreme northern climates. There, where darkness reigns up for three months a year and then summer blooms into three months of constant daylights, moods swing with the seasons. 
Light does have a profound effect on human mood and behavior. Mounting evidence indicates that people who are feeling a little down and need a lift can get it by going outside in the daylight. Walking in the light is a natural mood booster. Many who simply walk for half an hour or more during daylight hours receive a distinct benefit. Scientists are not entirely certain which wavelengths cause light's mood-boosting effects. Researchers believe that these effects are traceable to light taken through the eyes and not through the skin. A second medical use of light is light therapy for treating some cancers. Certain chemicals combined with light can destroy cancer cells. Research is underway to identify the best source of light and to determine how to direct it to body areas. Shifting from these brief remarks about physical light, I should like to consider a kind of light that has infinitely greater power and effect. I speak of spiritual light. It comes from God and His gospel. In the scriptures, we find reference to a a relationship between the physical light of the sun and spiritual light. In section 88, I quote, The light of truth, which truth shineth, this is the light of Christ. As also he is in the sun, and the light of the sun, and the power thereof, by which it was made. And the light which shineth, which giveth you light, is through him who enlighteneth your eyes, which is the same light that quickeneth your understandings. Which light proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space? The light which is in all things, which giveth life to all things, which is the law by which all things are governed. This earth will be a celestial sphere like a sea of glass and fire. The prophet Brigham Young said, The earth will not then be an opaque body as it now is, but it will be like the stars of the firmament, full of light and glory. It will be a body of light. John compared it in its celestial state to a sea of glass. In section 88, I quote, And again, verily I say unto you, The earth abideth the law of the celestial kingdom, for it filleth the measure of its creation, and transgresseth not the law. Wherefore it shall be sanctified, yea, notwithstanding it shall die, it shall be quickened again, and shall abide the power by which it was quickened, and the righteous shall inherit it. End quote. And in section 84, For the word of the Lord is truth, And whatsoever is truth is light, and whatsoever is light is spirit, even the spirit of Jesus Christ. And the spirit giveth light to every man that cometh into the world, and the spirit enlighteneth every man through the world that hearkeneth to the voice of the spirit. This word light appears 535 times in the scriptures. Light has a relationship to the Son of God. Quote, And if your eye be single to my glory, your whole body shall be filled with light, and there shall be no darkness in you, and that body which is filled with light comprehendeth all things. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Moroni said, And now, my brethren, seeing that ye know the light by which ye may judge, which light is the light of Christ, see that you do not judge wrongfully. For that which is uh, the same judgment which ye judge, ye shall also be judged. End quote. And John said, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have light of life. End quote. 
Our Lord is the light of the world in at least three ways. Ella McConkie has written, and I quote, One, through the light of Christ, he governs and controls the universe and gives life to all that is in it. Two, by this same immensity-filling light, and to certain faithful ones uh, by the power of the Holy Ghost, he enlightens the mind and quickens the understanding. And three, by his own upright, sinless, and perfect course in premortal life, in mortality, and in resurrected glory, he sets a perfect example and is able to say to all men, Follow thou me. In the first vision, light released the boy Joseph from oppressive darkness. How does light enter into us? How do we receive it? Quote, But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. And if therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? End quote. Commenting on this passage, Elder Bruce R. McConkie states, Christ is the light. The gospel is the light. The plan of salvation is the light. That which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light. And that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. As the light of the sun enters the body through our natural eyes, so the light of heaven, the light of the Spirit, which illuminates our souls, enters through our spiritual eyes. President Joseph F. Smith has said, One fault to be avoided by the saints, young and old, is the tendency to live on borrowed light, with their own hidden under a bushel, to permit the savor of their soul of knowledge to be lost, and the light within them to be reflected rather than original. Men and women should become settled in the truth and founded in the knowledge of the gospel, depending upon no person for borrowed or reflected light, but trusting only upon the Holy Spirit, who is ever the same, shining forever and testifying to the individual and the priesthood who live in harmony with the laws of the gospel of the glory and the will of the Father. They will then have light everlasting, which cannot be obscured. By its shining in their lives, they shall cause others to glorify God, and by their well-doing put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, and show forth the praises of him who hath called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. End quote. Light persuades us to do good. It leads us to Christ. It led my family, as it has led yours, and can and will lead all to him. Archibald Stewart and his wife Esther Lyle are my great-great-grandparents. The Stewart family had learned to face persecution and hardship. Their ancestors had been forced to flee from Scotland to Northern Ireland, where they had been promised protection. But instead of finding peace, they again became victims of persecution at the hands of the Irish Greens. Independence and strong conviction were part of their heritage. The Stewart family characteristics of love and devotion and a deep religious faith made them receptive to the gospel. When the Mormon missionaries came to the Stewart house, Elizabeth, the third child, immediately felt the truthfulness of the message. She began to study and search for more assurance of the things she felt within. And her feelings and studies stirred an immediate response in her old granny, who was the matriarch of the Stuart household. Elizabeth spent many hours telling her granny about the new prophet of God, Joseph Smith, who had brought back to the earth the simple, direct message that Christ was alive and had appeared to man. Elizabeth felt the testimony burning within and asked permission to be baptized. Because of the unpopularity of the Mormons, her parents objected. 
Elizabeth's uh, granny came to her rescue. Let the child alone, she said. I have read her, all her books, and I do believe the child is right. As Elizabeth left her home to go to her baptism, her granny was at her side. The two walked to the river where the elders had broken a hole in the ice that wintry March day. When the elders came toward Elizabeth to baptize her, her granny stepped up and said, Watch your manners, child. Never step in front of your elders. The elders baptized Granny in her street clothes. Even at, she even had on her little white cap. She had brought no extra clothes. She walked home in her wet, frozen clothes. She did not catch cold, even though she did not change her clothes until the other family members had gone to bed. She said nothing about her baptism to the family, but went about her usual tasks as, nothing, as if nothing had happened. After the others had gone to bed, she hung her clothing around the fireplace. In the morning, when Archibald got up, he saw the clothes drying. He began to joke with the others about Granny having me dipped in the river along with Elizabeth. Granny listened to their fun and said, Archibald, if you don't want people to hear, stop shouting so loudly. You can't talk about Granny now, for she can hear better than any of you. Granny had been virtually deaf for 20 years. But a miracle had restored her hearing at the time she was baptized. And from that day until her death, she could hear distinctly. Archibald said laughingly that she heard too much. <laughs> and most of the family members were baptized soon after in the year 1841. The light of the gospel illuminates the path of life to eternity that otherwise would be dark and not non-directing. We can be like a mirror to direct light even into dark places. We're not the sources of light. Nevertheless, through us, us, light can be reflected to others. I must return and report my stewardship and my words in the heavens when I leave this mortal life. Therefore, I testify with no hesitancy that God lives. Jesus is his holy Son, the one through whom we gain salvation. This is his church and kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.